I'm going to offer some reflections on the theme in praise of ignorance. Some of you might find that a little odd since in, in, in Buddhism, ignorance tends not to have a very good press. But as we practice Zen, particularly this practice of what is this, then we'll begin to see that ignorance has another way of being part of our lives that is not a negative, but arguably a positive thing. And we'll find as we do this practice, and those of you who have already done so will be more aware of this, that the more we go into a question, particularly an existential question about who we are, about what life is about, then the deeper we question, the more we may find that we're able to embrace how much we don't know. And that that's not a failure, but that's actually a gain. I've recently, and that means for the last years now, been absorbed in the writings and the um, ideas of uh, Michel, Mont Michel de Montaigne, a French essayist of the 16th century, who spent a lot of time in solitude in a tower on his estate and devoted himself to the practice of philosophy. But philosophy for him was not the kind of philosophy we would find on a course in a university today. But philosophy was a way of life. Philosophy was a commitment and a love of wisdom, seeking to be wise, uh, to understand things more deeply, not in the abstract, but in a way that is utterly embodied. And in one of Montaigne's essays, he says that astonishment is the foundation of all philosophy. Inquiry, the way it advances, and ignorance, its goal. And here too, I think we will find many uh, similarities with the practice of song. It too starts as its, or has as its foundation, astonishment, surprise, at the fact that we're here at all. And it advances with inquiry, with questioning, with curiosity, with perplexity. And its goal, well, I'm not going to be too precise about that. Buddhists, of course, speak of enlightenment, which is thought of as wisdom. But we're going to consider this afternoon, or whatever time of day it is for you, that um, another goal of this practice is uh, to not know and to know that we don't know. And this, in a way, 
is a part of wisdom. Now, Montaigne, when he is uh, writing about philosophy um, and thinking about what it means to be astonished and surprised, compares this to how for many people what they find most amazing and most astonishing are miracles and strange events. And today we have no shortage of those either. Um, there's always someone who's interested in whether we can read other people's minds or bend spoons uh, or do things that don't appear to have a, a scientific explanation. Now that may be as the case is, but the problem is when we think of uh, miracles and strange events as what is astonishing and amazing, we tend to overlook uh, something that is even more astonishing and more amazing that is absolutely close at hand. And this is what Montaigne says. He says, I have seen nothing more weird or miraculous than myself. Over time, we get used to strange things. But the more I probe myself and know myself, the more my oddity astonishes me and the less I understand who I am. Now, Montaigne knew nothing about Zen questioning, but this is one of the best accounts that I've come across that uh, elucidates the kind of questioning that we're going to be pursuing on this retreat. That as we calm our minds, as we settle down, as we allow our attention to become more stable, more clear, when the chattering mind momentarily, at least, begins to subside, we start to open our, our soul, really, to the fact of our own existence. And rather than thinking of ourselves as our inner monologue keeps reminding us as someone who's done this and has done that and is like this and is like that and will do this and will do that, this ongoing narrative, this monologue in our heads, that in many ways is what the organism naturally does in order to sustain the notion of ourselves as comprehensible, as somehow coherent, as rational, as sane. In other words, it's not crazy. We keep reciting and repeating this narrative. But as the attention in meditation begins to settle, we can suspend our belief in that narrative and open ourselves more, more broadly, more widely, to the fact that we are those kinds of beings that tell those kinds of stories. We can get, as it were, a wider perspective, a meta-perspective, if you wish, on how weird and miraculous we are. We can notice how odd we are and how little we really know about 
ourselves. Montaigne often quotes Socrates, who he considers to be the wisest man that ever lived, and often comments that the wisest man who ever lived, uh, when asked what he knew, said, all I know is that I know nothing. So here we have again a sense that wisdom is not at all uh, alien or somehow incongruous with the experience of not knowing, the experience of ignorance. And this doesn't just have to refer to oneself. Once the mind begins to settle, once this spirit of perplexity begins to take hold of who we are, we find that everything in our world, even the most ordinary mundane things, uh, are likewise incredibly strange. This is also something that we find in Montaigne. He says, just consider the fog through which we have to grope in order to comprehend the very things we hold in our hands. And again, that might be a pen, it might be a flower, it might be an apple, something which we're so familiar with that it no longer has the capacity to surprise us. It's boring, it's banal, it's ordinary. What Son practice is trying to do is to uh, recognize that the ordinary is extraordinary, that the banal is wondrous, that the trivial can be magnificent. And to illustrate this, Montaigne quotes a passage from the Epicurean philosopher Lucretius, who conducts a kind of thought experiment in his uh, famous poem, On the Nature of Things. And he says, he's talking about the night sky, but it could really be anything. He says, imagine if these things, the ordinary things of our lives, were shown to human beings now for the very first time, suddenly and with no warning. What could be declared more wondrous than these miracles no one before had dared believe could even exist. I've always been very taken with that passage because it points very clearly to how the focus of our practice, and I mean by that in the broadest sense of a philosopher or a person on a spiritual quest, a Buddhist, a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, an atheist, an agnostic, it really doesn't matter. Because what holds together, I think, any form of a serious inquiry, whether it's religious or otherwise, is the commonality of the questions. The fact that our life, the fact that this world can appear to us as a question can become a question for us. Who am I? What is this? Not just as a trivial, uh, momentarily uh, curiosity, but actually as a heartfelt, or one might even say a gut-felt uh, 
puzzlement and perplexity about being here at all. And this will bring us quite naturally away from Socrates and Montaigne, these great figures of European history and culture, and bring us to the koan that we'll be using for the rest of this retreat. A koan is a, it's a Japanese word, but the Chinese word kungan, which is exactly the same, slight different pronunciation, and literally means a public case, it's a legal term. And the koan collections, the collections of these public cases are basically um, uh, offering examples of moments in history, in Zen history, in which a teacher and a student usually have some kind of exchange in which an insight is arrived at. And those cases then become objects of contemplation and reflection by subsequent generations of students. The koan, or the case that I'm going to share with you now, concerns two monks who lived at the beginning of the 8th century in China. One of them was called Huineng, the sixth patriarch of Chinese Chan, uh, who many of you have probably heard of. The other is a young monk called Huai Zhang, who's not so well known. Huai Zhang was living up in the north of China, and he heard about this teacher who lived down in the south called Huineng, and he decided to go down and study with him. So he walked, and this would have been several hundred kilometers, from Mount Song, which is north of the Yangtze, all the way down to um, Nanwasu, the name of Huineng's monastery, which is not too far from Guangzhou or Canton. And on arriving at the monastery, Huai Zhang was um, taken to the Zen master's residence and invited in. And Huineng, the patriarch, uh, asks him, Now, where have you come from? And Huai Zhang replies, I've come from Mount Song. And then Huineng asks him, but what is this thing? How did it get here? At which Huai Zhang was speechless. The text then continues, he spent eight years in the monastery. Doesn't tell us what he did. Presumably he thought about this question. But at the end of this period, he goes back to the hall of the Chan master, Huineng, and he says, I've understood something. And then Huineng says, what is this? And Hui Zhang replies, to say it is like something misses the point. That's the end of the, of the case, of the koan. Now, what's going on here is effectively um, a move from conventional everyday chit-chat into a much more um, philosophical, if you wish, or a much more existential mode of discourse. So when the young man is invited into the Zen master's room, 
um, and is asked where he comes from. He says he comes from Mount Song. All of that is just unproblematic. Sort of thing you'd expect on any such occasion. But suddenly, Huineng changes the rules of the game. And instead of going on and saying, oh, and where were you living on Mount Song, blah, 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 he says, but what is this thing? And how did it get here? At this point, Hui Zhang is rendered speechless. In other words, he can't just carry on with the kind of social chit-chat that he had initially uh, been led to expect. Instead, he's thrown back onto his own fundamental curiosity and confusion and puzzlement about who he is, what this thing, in other words, this body-mind, this experience, what this thing is and how did it get here? In many ways, this is an impossible question. And I would argue that life is an impossible question. But that doesn't mean it's not a question. And it doesn't mean that there is no value in pursuing it as a question. Or should we say perhaps more accurately, for allowing it to reveal and disclose itself as a question. When we're meditating and we listen to the habitual chatter of our minds, um, we'll find that a lot of it uh, is just the story of Stephen telling the story of Stephen. I'm sure that has all kinds of evolutionary advantages built into it, but it's also a narrative that somehow anesthetizes us. It's like a constant ongoing anesthetic. It anesthetizes us to the fundamental astonishment of being here at all. It somehow doesn't allow that to happen because we're caught up in our own narrative. And in meditation, we see this particularly clearly because we're asked to, let's say, meditate on our breath. And we think, oh, well, that's easy. We meditate on our breath. But then weirdly, every few seconds, we get whisked away somewhere else. In other words, the, 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 the everyday conditioned narrative kicks in, takes over. So whatever kind of meditation we're doing, this is perhaps the first obstacle we have to overcome, to somehow break free of the tyranny of that everyday discourse and open up gaps, we might say, between those moments of monologue. And the question, what is this? What is this thing? How did it get here? Can be understood as a sort of sword. Our teacher used to say that this question is like the sword of Manjushri. Manjushri is the Bodhisattva of wisdom in Mahayana Buddhism. And each time you have the courage and the collectedness of mind, uh, to interrupt your monologue with, what is this? Then you, as it were, remove that anesthetic layer that 
occludes and hides and uh, distorts the astonishing thing that is actually going on, namely your life, and allows you to experience your life as increasingly puzzling, strange, weird, mysterious, whatever word works best for you there. So the practice that I'm introducing now that Martine mentioned this morning and um, we'll also continue talking about this for the rest of our time together, is basically a practice of taking this question, what is this, and staying with it. It doesn't mean to keep repeating it. It's not a mantra. It's not some special uh, prayer that will have some magical effect. It is simply an interruptive device. It breaks through the chatter of our ordinary thoughts. It opens us up to moments in which we glimpse the strangeness of our existence. And it allows us to focus on that strangeness. It allows us to go into that feeling of our own oddity. And to just rest with that. To rest in what in Chan or Son or Zen they call the great doubt. Uh, we tend not to use the word doubt. We'd say the great questioning, the great perplexity. And once you begin to start feeling this questioning, this perplexity, this doubt, vibrating or resonating through your body, then just stay with that. Stay with that physical, embodied sensation of puzzlement, of perplexity. And if that fades away, if the mind gets distracted, which invariably it does, at that point, once again, ask yourself, what is this? Don't get caught up in the specific words, particularly the word this, what is this? Again, the everyday mind will hook onto that and go, well, what does he mean by this? Does he mean this body? Does he mean the pain in my knee? Does he mean the song of the birds outside? And off we go, trying to pin down what this means. The only answer I can really give you here is to think of this as simply the the the, the, mo the most sort of uh, basic way we can articulate this this experience in its totality that is happening right now. What is this? Try not to let the mind settle on a particular feature of this, but rather open your heart open your soul to the totality of what's going on, even before we make the split between me, the subject in here, and the world, the object out there. Before we even begin to think or speak, when we're in this almost uh, childlike state 
of innocence and curiosity. What is this in its totality before we make any of those conceptual splits? And just come to stay with that. Just come to somehow feel what that's like. This is a contemplative exercise. It's a meditative exercise. We're not actually expecting you to come up with the right answer. There is, I can tell you now, there is no right answer. Go back to the Koran and we might say, well, yes, there is. Wei Zhang, after eight years in the monastery, he came up with the answer and the answer was to say it is like something misses the point. That might be a useful pointer, it might give us another clue, but crucially, it's not your answer. It's not my answer. It's not Martin's answer. What's going on in Son practice, and this I think is something that in a way is, is, is particularly distinctive about the Son approach, is that this meditation is not designed to bring us to a point where we understand what the Buddha's teaching is about. It's not about having the correct orthodox understanding of what constitutes the nature of reality. That's Buddhist dogmatism. And all Buddhist schools, including Zen, have come up with their uh, metaphysical theories about one mind or emptiness or Buddha nature or nirvana, whatever they call it. And orthodoxies tend to be uh, ways in which human beings can feel a certain contentment or satisfaction that even though they, the individual person may not understand what it means, we can trust that the tradition knows what it means, that the enlightened masters, they know what it means. But this is all totally beside the point. The point is to make this question your own, to make this question something that becomes palpable in your own body. In some of the Chan texts, it talks of how you should pose this question with the marrow of your bones and with the pores of your skin. That's your bones, your skin, your marrow. And if, and it's a big if, this question will resolve itself in a way that grants you insight and understanding. And again, we cannot be guaranteed anything. We don't know. We're opting in this practice for uncertainty, not certainty. Certainty belongs to religious faith. Here, we're in a practice that is putting that to one side. If we have faith, that's a faith in our own capacity to pursue this path. It's not a faith that the answers are out there somewhere waiting for us to find them. What we're looking for is not the right answer. What we're looking for is an appropriate response to that question. And the appropriateness of that response will be determined by who we are, what our needs are, what our situation in the world is, 
not by some uh, orthodox uh, religious doctrine that uh, claims to represent the truth. And it may be that, like Socrates, um, we end up actually embracing the fact that we don't know. And to recognize that perhaps what's far more valuable in terms of our living a flourishing life is not to one day come up with all the answers, to have a whole bunch of certainties that we've gained through our deep meditative insights, but to recognize that the way in which we feel most fully alive is when we are able to question, uh, to inquire with utter conviction in the value of questioning, not in the value of Buddhism having all the answers, but the power of questioning itself. And if we think about it, whenever we pose a question, we are at the same time acknowledging our ignorance. To say, you know, what is the capital of Brazil is only a meaningful thing to do if we do not know what the capital of Brazil is. And any question is the same. But here we're not asking any question. We're asking the question of our own life. We're, al we're allowing our own existence to be a question for us. So to say, who am I? Or what is this? Is to acknowledge that I don't know who I am. I don't know what this is. And this seems to have been what Socrates discovered, that Socrates did not have opinions or doctrines. They came later with Plato, who put a lot of these, his own opinions in Socrates' mouth. But in the early dialogues with uh, Socrates, the, they end in, in uncertainty, in not knowing. At the end of one of these dialogues, Socrates concludes, and the result of the whole discussion has been that I know nothing at all, for I know not what justice is. Justice is what they've been discussing. And thereby I am not likely to know whether it is or is not a virtue. Nor can I say whether the just person is happy or unhappy. This is puzzling, coming from the founder of Western philosophy, coming from the person who's supposed to be the wisest person of all. Yet we find this again and again. In another dialogue, this is with Tetetus. Um, he says, you forget, my friend, that I neither know nor profess to know anything of these matters we are discussing. And then he says something interesting. He says, you are the person who is in labor. I am the midwife. Socrates' role as a teacher is not to tell 
the students what's what, to give them all the answers, to explain all of these complicated doctrines. His role is to draw out from the student the student's own understanding. He's like a midwife. He's someone who helps us give birth. And I think in many of the Zen dialogues, we find a very similar process going on. We don't find the Zen master uh, telling the student what's true. We find the Zen master provoking the student, often in ways that seem extreme, beating them sometimes, shouting at them, saying things that sound completely uh, uh, abstruse or sometimes just downright abusive. And yet it's this, these kinds of shock tactics that provoke the student's insight. Hui Neng, likewise with Hui Zhang. You know, what is this thing? How did it get here? Pushing Hui Zhang into a state of speechlessness. Not the sort of thing he would have expected from a great enlightened teacher. And only years later does that shock tactic bear fruit when Hui Zhang at last comes to his own appropriate response to this question. I'm going to conclude with another short but very famous encounter that we find at the beginning of the Chan tradition in China. And this concerns Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma was an Indian uh, Buddhist monk who came from the south of India, went by boat probably to China, and then supposedly taught and established the Chan or the Zen tradition in that country. And one of the people he was invited to speak to was a man called Emperor Wu of Liang, uh, a great benefactor of Buddhist monasteries, a person who took a great interest in Buddhist thought. So Emperor Wu invited Bodhidharma to his court and um, asked him a couple of questions. The first question was, what is the meaning of the great truths of Buddhism? And Bodhidharma replied, great emptiness. And then Emperor Wu rejoined, but then who is standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma replied, I don't know. So once again, like Socrates, we have the wise person being the one who is able to say, I don't know. And as we practice this question in meditation, we might even alternate the question, what is this? Again, don't repeat this like a mantra. Don't get bogged down in what this means. But just to, when the mind is still and quiet and clear, gently ask yourselves, what is this? And just listen and wait. See what response might arise or not arise. At other times, we might find it helpful to say to ourselves, I don't know.
I don't know what this is. And allow ourselves likewise to just settle in the resonance of those words, in the resonance of not knowing. And let that too infiltrate into how we feel in our body-mind. So that's all I really have to say. We still have uh, about 20 minutes, and um, I'd be happy to, whoops, I'd be happy to um, respond to any questions that you have. Question, you talked of the physical sensation of puzzlement. What is this like to experience? Good question. Um, I would illustrate this by an example. Imagine that you've gone shopping and you've parked your car in the supermarket car park and you go into the store and you get your stuff and you come back and you're about to uh, unload your stuff into the car. You put your hand into your right jacket pocket it's where I keep my car keys, and um, they're not there. So you put your hand into your other pocket. They're not there either. And then you do something really rather strange. You check the first pocket again, as though 200 grams of metal could suddenly have manifested in that pocket. They're not there. Then you really start getting puzzled. And you can't, for the life of you, imagine where you put them. And you might get to a point where the mind just gives up. And you just are there in a kind of wordless perplexity. And of course, in that situation too, there's a lot of rage and frustration going on as well. But I think you get a clue as to what it might feel, feel like to be physically puzzled. To actually feel the puzzlement and the, and the perplexity. Where the hell are these keys? The words, at a certain sense, are no longer necessary. Your body is puzzled. You are puzzled. Now, in meditation, we're not obviously in such a, 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 an emergency, as it were. But nonetheless, if we can bring our minds to a greater point of stillness and focus, then when asking, what is this? We might slowly start to recognize that this question is not just coming from my voice or my mind. It's actually reverberating through my body. That's what I mean. Uh, Does not knowing relate to beginner's mind? I think it does, yeah, very much so. Remembering that beginner's mind is not just for beginners. Beginner's mind is for everybody. I like to think of Socrates in this term too. Here is this person who has these learned and very intense philosophical discussions and at the end of it says, actually, I don't know anything about this. That is the beginner's mind. Uh, the beginner's mind is where, I mean, this is a, a famous book by, Diti, by Shumryu Suzuki. The beginner's mind is one, the beginner's mind has endless possibilities. 
the expert's mind has very few. The expert, the person who knows everything about Buddhism, has kind of closed down the questions that Buddhism is really interested in. But the person who shows up on their first retreat without really much knowledge of Buddhism at all has got a great advantage over the professor of Buddhism or the great enlightened Buddhist monk who knows everything. The person who knows nothing is the person who can really question. And it's to keep that beginner's mind alive that I feel in many respects is what this whole practice is about. Any thoughts on just sitting practice versus mindful breathing practice? I'm supposing just sitting practice would be a reference to shikantaza, uh, which is a soto zen practice where one simply just sits without any kind of uh, agenda, without any, any particular focus. The practice we are um, uh, pursuing here is not the practice of shikantaza, of just sitting, nor is it the practice of mindful breathing, although both could be used to support this kind of uh, questioning practice that we're speaking of. Um, but this questioning practice comes from the uh, Zen tradition, which goes back to Rinzai in Japanese or Lin Chi in Chinese, which takes um, as its focus the um, dwelling in this state of perplexity and questioning. So it does have an object, but that object is, in the end, the totality of your life in this given moment. It's not about focusing on a particular object like the breath, but nor is it about not focusing on anything like shikantaza. So we're keeping this openness and presence of mind, but we're seeking to infuse it with a quality of puzzlement and perplexity. I think all of these practices have their strengths and weaknesses and they will be adapted to different people at different times in their lives. Um, and I think it's therefore important that all of us uh, uh, don't take these things too rigidly. But the crucial thing is, do we find this practice actually works for us now? Do we think there's some juice in this? Uh, do we feel that it's responding to a real need that we feel in our bodies, rather than just an intellectual curiosity. How does this keys feeling work with calm and stillness? I'm wondering how much oomph to add to the inquiry. Um, well, again, I think like any time you give an analogy, it's always, it'll only go so far. The problem with the losing your keys in the car park analogy is that it's not, you know, the meditation doesn't have the urgency. It doesn't need you to get the shopping in the car and all those other things. Um, it's, an, it, 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 it's a metaphor. Um, and the crucial part of the metaphor is that of recognizing how you know what it's like to question with your body. That's all that matters, really. Um, there's lots of questions coming in and I'm losing where we were. Um, but uh, again, you may find that the, the, the bringing this question in, even when you're doing shikantaza or you're doing mindfulness of the breath, can sometimes invigorate the practice. It can sort of wake you up, can give you a bit of an oomph. Is it okay that asking what is this brings 
my mind back to what I think it was like to be an infant. Um, it's not up to me to say whether it's okay or not. You need to follow this inquiry in your own way. I can all, I or Martine or Tony can only give you broad guidelines. Uh, remember the, the aim of this exercise is for you to find an appropriate, authentic response to this question. And that is going to be entirely your business. And for some of us, maybe for you, Jess, it, it immediately brings us back to a sense of being a child. Uh, again, we had beginner's mind already. If, any, if anyone has a beginner's mind, it's a young child. There's a text that I like very much from a Japanese Zen, which um, I'm not going to go and try and find it because I'll waste the time in tracking it down. But you find this actually in, 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 in one Japanese text on Zen meditation. It says, you know, question deeply and deeply and deeply and become like a child in your own heart. I think from those of us coming from a Christian culture, we also resonate with the idea of, of Jesus, that you know, the children entering the kingdom of heaven. There is something about the child as a metaphor uh, that I think allows us to imagine and perhaps even experience uh, our own innocence before the mind got filled with worries and beliefs and convictions and plans. Yes, I think that's a good image. We come back to that sort of primal innocence. Not knowing makes us feel very uncomfortable. Can you say something about facing this, facing this discomfort, this uncomfortableness? Well, if it makes you feel uncomfortable, then it's working. I'm afraid this is something we may have to go through because for many people, and I think our societies reinforce this endlessly, um, we're expected uh, to be people who know what's what. Just go back to the last time you were having a, a conversation or a discussion or maybe an argument with a friend about some topic or other and how easily you slip into the mode of I'm the one who knows. I know this. And you're completely convinced and you're getting very upset about it. And the person over there is really so stupid if they don't understand. The inner monologue that I spoke about is basically the monologue of the person who knows. And me being Stephen or you being Jenny has to do, in a sense, with constantly seeking to reinforce the sense of being Stephen or Jenny. And being Stephen or Jenny means that you know a certain amount of stuff and that you're rather convinced that you know a certain amount of stuff. And that's a lot of what your ego identity, your emotional security even, depends on the fact that you, you know a lot of stuff. And you're right. And that's what has to start to get, and that is what we're actually challenging. That we're actually taking the risk, finding the courage within ourselves to put that into question. Maybe we don't really know a whole bunch of stuff. 
And this is maybe where the wisdom of Socrates can help remind us of that. If Socrates didn't know nothing, well, chances are Jenny and Stephen don't know nothing neither, as they say in English. So, yes, that can be uncomfortable. And it's uncomfortable because it's actually pulling the rug from beneath our feet. It's, un it's uncomfortable because it's, uh, it, it's, it's shaking the, um, the certainties that we're often unconsciously committed to. But that's where this practice goes. And I think any practice that's worth uh, anything uh, is challenging us to rethink our lives rather than providing us with a bunch of consolatory beliefs that can make us feel good about ourselves. When embracing not knowing, accepting that I don't know anything, how does one avoid crippling lack of confidence in one's knowledge, leading to counterproductive self-doubt in life? Well, that's a very sensible question. But I think for the next couple of days, we should perhaps suspend being sensible and allow ourselves perhaps to take a risk, to venture into what we don't know and to put aside those anxieties and worries. Um, again, going back to the previous question, this practice can be disconcerting. But then I feel a useful question to ask is, why did I come on this retreat then? Why, why, did, why am I drawn to meditation? Is it just to make me feel more comfortable? Well, maybe if that's the case, you've come to the wrong retreat. Do we have the courage to really question what it is to be the person we are and to be able to go over those periods of discomfort, those periods of self-doubt, all of which have their own legit legitimacy. But what we're trying to do here is to, first of all, establish a groundedness in our body-mind that we achieve uh, doing the meditations that Tony's been guiding, for example, getting into the breath, into the body, grounding ourselves in these really basic uh, exercises that provide us with that primary kind of uh, uh, security. And then once the mind is stable and still, at least relatively stable and still, only then ask these questions in those moments of stability and stillness. And I think that will help override some of our concerns about uh, self-doubt and discomfort because we're asking this question from a state of inner stillness and stability. And I think when we feel that stillness and stability in our bodies, when we're held in a kind of contemplative space of mind, then that I think is where the courage uh, to pursue such questions can be grounded. I watched the Bodhi College session on Thursday about Yonis Omanisikara. Where, which mentioned an analogy of a surgeon's probe. Is the questioning practice a form of this? Are we questioning into what is going on even though we are not searching for an answer? Yes. 
I think a surgeon's probe, which is an image you find in the early Pali text, is quite an appropriate one here. Uh, it's, it's, we're probing, but it's not just a dull, blunt probe, it's a sensitive probe. And Yonisomanasikara, which I think Akinchino is translating as um, radical awareness, which I agree with. I think Yonisomanasikara is a, a radical awareness. And this practice is also a radical awareness in the sense that it's an awareness that tries to get to the root of things. Yoni in Pali and Sanskrit actually means the womb. This is a kind of an attention that seeks to return to the womb. And again, children, beginner's mind, it's all going, I feel, metaphorically at least, in a similar direction. And I've got time for one more question. This is everything I encounter. This is, or this, is everything I encounter, I, the birds, the bees, myself, the insects, the sounds, the thoughts, and so on, which are all different manifestations of the Tao. But what is the Tao? The Tao means the way. Exactly. Stay with that. I'm not going to, I, I have no idea what the Tao is. But if that's where it's leading you, this questioning, there's a famous koan uh, in China, which I think is, saying something similar it says if the 10,000 he says the 10,000 things return to the one where does the one return your question to me sounds very much like that and I think what it's pointing to is the questioning I feel is endless uh, questioning is infinite there's nowhere where it can finally come to rest. Remember that too was one of Hui um, Neng's great insights. Hui Neng, the sixth patriarch, who is the Zen master in our story, um, he was once asked, "What is uh, zazen or cao chan? What is sitting meditation?" And he says, "Sitting meditation is." where the mind has nowhere to rest. He didn't say sitting meditation is sitting cross-legged with your back straight. Sitting meditation, zazen, is where the mind has nowhere to rest. Questioning in this way is infinite. It's endless. Wherever you arrive, let's say you arrive at the Tao, the Tao can become a question too. What is the Tao? Or if you're a Christian, you might arrive at God. Okay, next question, what is God? And this can go on forever to the point where the mind is kind of obliged to give up and just to rest in the quality of questioning itself, just to be able to abide in the mystery that is life. Um, why call it questioning instead of the great doubt? Isn't the difference between doubt as a hindrance? Isn't there a difference between doubt as a hindrance and the great doubt? Is that why we don't seek an answer in the latter? Again, this is semantics, really. If you find great doubt has more potency for you, then use that. Think of your practice as a, as a matter of pursuing this great doubt. Um, 
the terminology doesn't really matter. And as you'll hear, Martine and I and Tony will use different words. You need to find your own language for this. Who is the I that doesn't know? Very good. That's your koan. You've sorted it out. Now stay with that question. That's good enough. That's your koan. Stay with it. Who is the I that doesn't know? Or you could, I sometimes put this, you know, what is this that asks, what is this? It goes on forever. Um, embracing not knowing is a way perhaps of sidestepping conditioning and receiving and receive knowledge and be more fully alive. Great training for these times. Yes, I agree. Embracing not knowing is precisely that. It's sidestepping all of the conditioned certainties and convictions and opinions and views that we have. And uh, all the received knowledge that we have. And I agree. I think in this lockdown with coronavirus, we have the time and we have a very supportive situation where nobody quite knows what the hell is going to happen, what is happening. We're in a great big global collective unknowing. And we can use that to reinforce our practice in Zen of not knowing. And that I think could be a very good way to use this uh, period of confinement. There's one. Uh, okay, I'm gonna have to stop here. Um, I wish you all the best for your continuing practice for uh, today. Um, if you're new to the practice of what is this, you may want to start just every now and again dropping that question into your meditation. Um, if you're used to the practice of what is this, then please, you know, now that we're beginning, we're beginning to get into this retreat, then uh, go more deeply into that. And um, in the coming days, uh, both Martine and I will be talking further about um, uh, what this retreat is about. And we look forward very much to being with you, albeit virtually.